Well, greetings, everyone. Thank you for coming to this session, which is entitled A Third of Us, What It Takes to Reach the Unreached. We're going to uh, actually do, do two different things uh, this evening, this afternoon, this afternoon. Uh, first, talk, talk about unreached peoples and who they really are, and then what Jesus says we are to do in order to reach them. So that, uh, in a nutshell, is what we're going to be doing this next hour. I do welcome all of you that have joined us by live stream. Uh, I don't know how many of you are there, but uh, welcome. Good to have you as part of this as well. And there will be question and answer time at the end. And if some of you on live stream have questions, let us know and someone will pick them up for you uh, for us to hear them as well. All right. All right. Let's open in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this uh, afternoon. We thank you for your calling in our lives to allow us to not only know your gospel, but to share it with others. We know that there's many that haven't had a clue as to what the gospel is because of the lack of access that they've had to it. And so I pray that this session will help us to understand who those people are and what we are to do to reach them. So we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. My name is Marv Newell. I've been engaged in missions for over 40 years. I served in Indonesia for a while, and then I've been a professor of missions and had different jobs along the way. Uh, But one group that I've uh, recently been part of is called the Alliance for the Unreached, which is focusing on unreached peoples. And this is what I'd like to present to you today. Um, What we've discovered is this. The issue is that a third of humanity does not have access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, our group actually started eight years ago and tried to promote the International Day for the Unreached in the churches across America. And uh, the interest in that uh, just waned and waned throughout uh, the first few years. And so we decided to try to figure out why people don't seem to be interested in unreached peoples. And so we hired a marketing company And they helped us understand this, that nobody knows what we're talking about when we talk about unreached people. The normal church goer just doesn't understand. And if you say, well, 2% of humanity doesn't, uh, there in this people group doesn't, yeah, they, they, they don't want to get confused with statistics and percentages and all. And so we decided that we needed a different message. We went to say the same thing, but with different terminology, that would be helpful for, for them. And so when we take a look at the unreached peoples of the world, about 40% are unreached. And so we came up with this phrase, a third of us. A third of humanity does not have access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that word access is what is very, very important. They just don't have access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know, when you tell your church people, uh, when you present it in those terms, they get it. They understand that. I mean, that's quite, quite easy to, to grasp, obviously. Oh, you mean a third of the people in the world don't even have access to the gospel? Yes, that's what we're talking about. And so by using terminology that they can relate to, we have found that um, our movement has grown largely and a lot of people now are plugged in and are doing something about unreached peoples. And so we've been uh, very pleased with the way that um, this terminology has been, happening, uh, been able to be used. But um, is this on? I think this is on, right? Testing, one, two, three. I don't think it's on. Um, all right. Can you hear me all right? All right, if you're good with that, I'll just put that to the side. And um, so what do we mean by unreached peoples? We talk about the three no's. Now, I know that I'm a missiologist. My degree is in missiology. And I know there's technical definitions for unreached peoples. But in order for our people to understand what it means, we say that there's people that has no access to Bibles or access to churches, or even to other believers within their own people group, or within their own geographical region. That the three no's, no Bible, no church, no believers, qualifies a group for being a group that does not have access to the gospel. And so, by talking about this in this terminology, people can understand that as well, rather than using percentages and and other technical jargon that is easy for us to do in mission circles. But the question that usually comes up when we do this is, well, then, if that's the case, where are these no people? Where is these people that don't have access to the gospel? And um, 
There's actually three ways that we can understand where these people happen to be. First of all, they are embedded in unreached people groups. There's what we call unreached people groups. Now, most of you probably know that the world contains, oh, about 230 countries. But within those countries, there's groupings of peoples that have an affinity to themselves that we call people groups. And across the globe today, there's just under 17,500 distinct people groups that have their own culture and their language and their own worldview. They are a people group. And of these 17,500 that are in the world today, 10,000 have been touched with the gospel to some degree and have access to the gospel. But about 7,397, and you know, the number varies every once in a while, just over 7,000 of the people groups are in the three no category. No church, no Bible, no believers in their area. They have no access to the gospel. And so um, the world today, actually in starting this month of November, uh, we just crossed the threshold of 8 billion people in the world today. And so of the 8 billion people in the world today, we know that at least 3.2 billion people are what we call unreached peoples, or a third of us. Now I know that if you're, uh, if you're a mathematician, you say, well that number doesn't quite line up, but it comes close to it in order to get our message across as to what we're talking about. And that's the key of what we're trying to do, is trying to get people to focus on these unreached peoples. Now, here's a graph that looks a little technical to you, and I don't want to go through all the pieces of it, but basically humanity is divided into three distinct groups, the unreached and unsaved, or the underreached and unsaved, or the reached but not saved, and within that Bottom part is some that are uh, true believers. But what I would like us to see is this. The column that I just put up that's on the right is the third of us or those who have no access to the gospel are these people right here. This is the 3.2 billion people that have uh, that are situated in the no situation that we want to bring the gospel to. And so when it comes to people group uh, we find that there's that many that still do not have gospel uh, presented to them in their, in their culture. Also, these people are insulated within their religious blocks, their, their religions that they, that they uh, believe in. Now, here's a graph that shows you basically where people of the world happen to be grouped according to their religion. And, you know, people follow a religion because they believe in something about that religion that makes them... Uh, adhere to, to that religion. And therefore, they're insulated from the gospel by the belief system that they have been taught probably since they were children and have come to believe. And so what we're saying is this, is that when you take all those that are in the non-Christian category right here, we're talking about the majority of these. So many of these are part of the no's. Now, uh, some of them are, are reached or are being reached, and so we're glad about that. But many of these still are not only, not only unreached, uh, but there, there's uh, no effort to reach them at all. And so uh, we see that uh, they are people insulated by the religion that will find it hard to follow a new set of beliefs because of what they currently believe anyway. And then thirdly, we know that these unreached peoples are and geographic areas that are restricted. That they're in places that is difficult for the gospel to ever get to, be able to get to them. You take a country like, say, North Korea, or like Laos, or many parts and segments of India, and many other places, that these are what we call highly restricted areas that does not permit a gospel messenger to come to those areas, to be physically present within those areas, unless they come in a creative way, and we call them creative access opportunities or countries, that they will be able to, in some way, and medical work is by, by, the, by far one of the best creative ways to get into these unreached people groups because of the uh, need for that profession, obviously, is, is so great. Everyone's health is so vital to them. That it takes create pe- creative people like you all, that are medical doctors and medical per- personnel and all, that will be actually able to get into a country that an evangelist or a preacher or uh, an outright church planning missionary would not be able to do that. 
And so we know that there's a lot that inhabit these, these areas here. Now, David Platt, who most of you probably know uh, who he would be, said this. He says, you know, it's good to focus on unreached peoples, but we need to also focus on unreached places where these peoples happen to be. And so let's not say that, that there's places of the world that we won't enter because it's just too hard to get there. Those are places where the unreached are, and therefore we must go as missionaries to unreached places around the world, that second paragraph that you see there. The unreached peoples are there, and also there's places where unreached peoples, once they're reached, can penetrate other areas close to them. And so geographically, we look at the task in that way as well. And so a third of us, where are these no's, the people that have no access to the Bible, to the church, or to other believers? They can be summarized by being embedded in unreached people groups and insulated by other religions and then also inhabit these gospel-restricted areas. Now, if you want to dig deeper, there are websites like the Joshua Project website and others where you can get detailed lists of people groups uh, country by country or religion by religion, whatever you want, and dig deeper and get specific information on unreached people. They've been researched out, and we have all the data available to know who they are specifically and what kind of work might be, uh, might be trying to be started among them as uh, we, we see um, those places that still need to be reached. And so I'm just giving you a summary of what the situation is. The issue is this. A third of humanity does not have access to the gospel. I mean, in simple terms, that's what we're talking about. So, if that's the case, how do we go about reaching these unreached peoples? Uh, What are we to do? Um, And I think the best thing to do is go back to the very words of Jesus and to see what he told us to do. He told the disciples to do and us through the disciples as to how we are to reach the unreached. And so we're going to take a look at this time now. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And many times, you know what we forget? We forget that the Great Commission passages that we have in Scriptures are the commandments of Jesus that he gave us that we are to keep as well. And so we need to find what he told us through the disciples to do and keep his commandments in in that way. Now, if I was to ask you where the Great Commission is found, and we call them Great Commission passages, where would you say uh, the Great Commission is found? Can I hear from some of you? Matthew 28. That's always the first one that comes out, which is great, because actually probably in many of our Bibles it says right there somewhere uh, on a subtitle, the Great Commission, right? So that's a good one. Where, where else is the Great Commission found? Say again? Now, the words of Jesus himself. Okay, the words, the words of Jesus. Yeah, Acts 1.8, right? Acts 1.8, that usually comes in second. And there's a few in between. So let me review with you the five Great Commission passages that Jesus gave to his disciples. They're all found in the last chapters of the Gospels and then also the first chapter of Acts. First of all, we know that Matthew 28, um, you know, the biblical order, 18 through 20, and then there's Mark 16, 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, right? And then there's Luke 24, 44 through 49. Many people skip that one or forget it or don't know that that one's there. And then there's John 20, 21, as the Father sent me, so send I you. And then, of course, there's Acts 1, 8. Um, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Uh, that's a summary of it. And so those are the five Great Commission passages. Now, the question is this. How did Jesus present these to the disciples? Now, this is vitally important because this is how we understand what our mission is today. And that is this. These were given in a chronological order. In other words, if I was to put these passages in chronological order the way Jesus gave them to the disciples, he gave John 20 first, and then he gave the Mark 16, and then he gave the Matthew, and then he gave the Luke, And then he gave the Acts passage. In other words, how we see them in Scripture written out, we need to dig deeper into the text and examine the settings in which Jesus gave them to understand this. 
And here's the important thing. That these passages are not synoptic. They're not synoptic. In other words, what I'm saying is this. Jesus didn't just like off the cuff one day gather his disciples and say, oh, by the way, here's the Great Commission. And so the disciples, five different guys wrote it down five different ways, the emphasis that they thought that they heard. And the, the, the Great Commission was just kind of like one, a one-time thing. That is not what happened. Rather, what he did is that he sequentially gave them to the disciples over a 40-day period. In other words, it can be seen, the sequence can be seen like this. Um, on the night of his resurrection, Jesus gathered the disciples together, together and gave the shortest of the Great Commission passages. As the Father sent me, so send I you. You know, pretty much it's, that's what he said. That was the night that he resurrected. And then a week later, in Mark chapter 16, we find that he gave the second one. They were still in Jerusalem at the time. But then they went up to Galilee, and Jesus met with them on a mountain, it says, and he gave the Matthew 28 passage. And after that was done, they went back down to Jerusalem again, or up to Jerusalem, I guess is geographically correct, and maybe a day or a couple hours before he ascended into heavens, we find that he gave the Luke passage. And then just the moment before he ascended into heaven, Jesus gave the final Great Commission passage. So here's what Jesus did. Jesus took his disciples through a mini school of world missions. A mini school of world missions. And we're going to do that right now too, um, really briefly. Okay, really briefly. And Jesus took them sequentially through all the parts of the components that it takes in order to reach unreached people groups. And he did it over a 40-year period, a 40-day period. And the 40-day period was done because of this. First of all, he wanted to incrementally impart to them the information that was given to them. It was way too much content to dump on them in, in one teaching se- session. And so he spread it out over 40 days. And he gave them a little bit here, and then a week later, another bit here, and a week later, another bit here. So he did that way. Secondly, the disciples really were not in any frame of mind to absorb all this information in one setting or one, one time. After all, they were still traumatized from all the events that just took place with Jesus being crucified and then resurrected and now appearing to them. And they're still trying to, you know, come to grasp with all this. And there's no way that they could ever comprehend all that was being done in these five passages that they were, was the mission that they were to go on. And then thirdly is this. By teaching through repetition, Jesus was emphasizing its importance and making sure that they got it. Now, any of you that are in, uh, a teacher and know pedagogy that you know repetition is very, very important. You know, there's a very important uh, hermeneutic uh, principle when it comes to understanding Scripture, and it's very simple, and it says this. Whatever in Scripture is important is repeated. And whatever is repeated is important. All right? And you can, you can go through Genesis and other places and see how that works out. And so whatever is important is repeated. Whatever is repeated is important. And that's what we see in the Great Commission that Jesus gave to us, his, his people, through the disciples. He wanted us to get it too. And so he repeated it. And he repeated it in a way that there's different emphases that come out of each of these passages that helps us to understand what our mission in reaching these one-third of humanity how it's to be done. How it's to be done correctly. So, here's what i like us to do. i like us to, ter- first of all, take a look at this graph and see how they pull together. Now, if you look at the column on the, on the very left, you see the passages that we already looked at. You see the second one is the location of where they were when they were, uh, the disciples were when Jesus gave them the mandates. And then, when it took place. And, you know, by piecing together and reading the context, you can see that the first one took place the evening of the resurrection. Eight days later was the Mark 16 one. Uh, Thomas wasn't there on the first one, but he was there on the second one. Judas wasn't there for any of them. So, 11 disciples, 12 disciples, uh, 10 disciples, and then 11 disciples got all of these through the, if you look at the next columns here. But you can just see how Jesus incrementally gave them a little bit more, a little bit more, and where they were at the time uh, when Jesus gave them to them. The mandate is there, and we're going to look at those words. But here's the emphasis. 
the emphases that come out are the emphases that we need to follow today as we go on mission to reach the unreached. The first one has to do with the model, the magnitude, the methodology, the message, and the means. And I like to spend the rest of our time just kind of skimming through these five emphases so that we understand how we're to do the mission today as Jesus told us to do it. So, we'll start with our model. Our model for reaching. Now, the night that Jesus uh, resurrected, he met with the ten disciples that evening. As you know, they were all closed up in the upper room. And he just kind of walked in amongst their midst. And he gave them a little bit of instruction and said to them, As the Father has, uh, peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. Um, what Jesus is saying is this. He says, you know, I have walked with you for the last three years. You've observed my life. You've seen my character. You've seen the way that I have, I have served people. You've seen the way that I live a life of integrity. And as the Father sent me to be an example amongst all of you, in the same way, I am sending you. I'm sending you to be that same kind of person as you go on mission for me. Now, you know, this is really, really important uh, that this is where we start with our mandate as we go to the missions because the character of the, mission, of the message bearer speaks more to the people than the message, the verbal message that we might be proclaimed. Our lifestyle, the way that we live our lives, it's important that we live our lives in a way that's congruent and aligned with the, the morality of Scripture and the standards of Scripture. Now, for all of us who might say, well, that's a given. I mean, after all, why shouldn't it be that way? But let me tell you this. Um, at one time, I was the area director over 300 missionaries for a part of the world. And um, I would say this, that more missionaries uh, during the time that I was doing this disqualified themselves for continued service, not on the basis of their competency, their ministry competency, but on their character because of some character flaw or something they got themselves into, something that they did that should not have been done, that, you know, they had to come home and just getting mixed up or messed up in different things. It's because they did not take care of their spiritual relationship with God as they were on mission. And so, we find that many people, now they come home on other different pretenses, and you remember, may not see this when people arrive back home because other, other reasons are given, but many times it's because of a, a problem with their life. And so we must live the message that we proclaim. Um, modeling the way is Jesus' way. Jesus said by, uh, he himself set the standard for how his followers are to conduct themselves while engaged in taking the uh, gospel to the world. His life became the impeccable model for everything, for character, for morals, for ethical behavior, and for performance. And by emulating his life, no follower of Jesus will ever need to be or to question whether his conduct is consistent with the gospel that he or she proclaims. You know, I, I just know that this is so, so important uh, in the way that we uh, go on mission with him. And so we must constantly be leaning on uh, Jesus as our model and using him as our model as we go on, on uh, mission with him. Now, I've got a book here that actually it's called A Third of Us. And I delineate out of that book uh, 14 different statements that Jesus made about what he said to do, and so send I you to do the same thing. And so um, we can dig deeper into them, but we don't have time to do that uh, today. And so modeling our lives after Jesus is critical and very, very much most important thing that we do. I don't know if any of you know Missio Nexus. Do any, are you any late with Missio Nexus? And I've been the senior vice president of that. But every month we put out three books. Uh, that we've done reviews on and we take the best quotes out of those books and send them to our members. One book is on ministry, one is on leadership, and one is on spiritual formation. And the spiritual formation book is so vitally important because we're still, all of us, 
being formed in our Christian character, are we not? And so Jesus must be the model that we follow. Secondly, after that, a week later, the disciples are still in Jerusalem. Do you know why they're still in Jerusalem? Because the Passover feast is an eight-day feast. And so the disciples did what they did every year. They went from the first day right to the eighth day. And so Jesus meets with them again the second time. And this is the night that, that Thomas is with them because it says that the 11 disciples were there. And Jesus said this to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. He's talking about the magnitude of what they're to do. Now, at this point now, the disciples had no idea that they were going to go on a global mission and that they were going to institute this global mission that was to go every place, uh, to take the gospel everywhere because the gospel was applicable for all peoples of all times and therefore they were to be the ones, that be the, uh, uh, the, the pioneers to go and, and do that very thing. Now there's two phrases here that i like us to look at really quickly. One is this, all the world, every part of the globe was to hear the good news. No continent was to be excluded. No geographic re- uh, region ignored. No distance was to be considered too far. And no people group too remote geographically that they were not to be accessed with the gospel. We're going to go into all the world. So the task was nothing short of global. But there's a second phrase there. Whole creation, and what he's talking about is humankind creation, uh, and when you read the text there. Jesus said that there, it was to be global, uh, and the whole creation shows that it was uh, to be where we, if we possibly can, get every person to at least have access to the gospel, and at least have the opportunity to either believe it, reject it, or ignore it, or whatever we want to do, but to the whole creation. Now, you know, we've had a lot of great pioneer missionaries who are wonderful examples for us in our mission through the years. And I still remember Hudson Taylor. Most of you know Hudson Taylor was the founder of uh, China Inland Mission, right? And uh, Hudson Taylor says, I cannot rest until every Chinese has an opportunity to hear the gospel. You know, what he was doing, he was basing that on this passage here, that the whole creation, everybody, should at least have access to the gospel if not hear the gospel proclaimed to them directly themselves. And so these two phrases are very, very important. It tells us the magnitude. Uh, trying to reach every people, at least every people group as well, uh, should be there. And you know what? There's a phrase embedded within this, within this verse that says, uh, it's, it's actually translated in our English translations, proclaim the gospel but the word is euangelion, which means to evangelize. To evangelize, every single time it should be translated that way. And so I think that the verse really focuses on what's called world evangelization. Now that's a phrase you don't hear much anymore, do you? World evangelization. That word to, what I say here is a, a good way to translate this verse is go into all the world and evangelize all of mankind. All of mankind is to be evangelized. And so that's our mandate, to take the gospel to the whole creation, to everybody that we possibly can. Well, Jesus went on. He got the disciples together up in Galilee. Uh, about two weeks later or so, we don't know. There's no time given to us to be able to pinpoint it. But say a week and a half, two weeks later, gives them time to get up there. And maybe you recall, if you put the events together. Jesus met the disciples by the Sea of Galilee and he told them to throw the fish, uh, his net on the other side of the boat and they caught 152 fish and so forth. And then he took them up to a mountain. It says in Matthew, he took them to a mountain and he taught them there and he gave the Matthew 28 passage, which is the most familiar passage to all of us, right? But notice that this passage begins with all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The reason that we go on mission, the reason that we reach unreached peoples, the reason that we try to crack into unrestricted and to restricted areas is because of the authority of Jesus telling us to do so. And that supersedes all other authorities. And so the authority is there. But notice verse um, 19 says this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe 
all that I have commanded you. Now that verse has four verbs in it, and one of them is the imperative. And the imperative is that one I haven't read, make disciples of all nations. The method that we are to use in reaching the unreached is to make disciples of these people. To bring them from darkness to light, from unbelief to belief, to from hating Jesus or not knowing Jesus to loving Jesus, we are to do that. And the way that we do that, there's four, three other verbs there that act kind of like participles, and that is the ones in yellow, the go, baptizing, and teaching. Now, you can diagram it like this. Remember back in high school, you had to diagram sentences? So I, here you are diagramming this sentence here. As you are going, here, make disciples of all nations is the key phrase. And everything modifies back to that. Baptizing them and teaching them. And so, these are the activities that we're engaged in, we're to engage in, in order to make disciples. Now, what is a disciple? Uh, I'd like to give you my definition. By the way, I was down uh, next to the doors of the big auditorium there. It sits, someone says it sits 10,000 10, people can sit in there. Amazing, you know. This church is an amazing church. And on the side it said, uh, it gave some of the things that they do here at church. And one of them said that we make disciples here so that we can go and make disciples and make disciples and make disciples. And I thought, that's cool. That's good. They got it right. You know, that's, that's what it's all about. But I would say this, that here's, what we're, here's the end result of what we are to do in this methodology. A disciple is a consistent follower of Jesus whose life is progressively being transformed into the likeness of Christ. He joyfully walks with Christ, is constantly being informed by Scripture, by prayer, by the Holy Spirit and by others, with the chief end of glorifying God. If we are to get our end game correctly. This is what we're after. is having people become these kinds of people. And the method that we're to do that is very much here. We're to go, which is the reaching out. I call that the penetration. And so we do have pioneer missionaries and others that aren't pioneer, but they, they go and penetrate into unreached people groups and unreached areas and geographical areas. We're to baptize them once we get believers. Baptizing them means to bring them in, to consolidate them into a relationship with Christ and with his church, bringing them in, and then teaching them. Teaching them is the transformation ministry, the changing over of character of old ways to new ways, of old world views to new world views, and old habits and old customs to new, new customs that are aligned with the morals and uh, conduct of Scripture. That's the transformation. And so, this is what we are to be doing. It becomes very clear that, that our, our, our method is to be this of doing it. Now, I know that those that go out in professions like medical professions and others um, do work in order to help others to bring people to this place. And so, you know, although you may not be a direct church planter or an evangelist or something like that, you are helping make that happen by especially the penetration segment of this, of this threefold step of making disciples, this process of making disciples. Well, Jesus went on. And about a week later, he had the disciples back down in Jerusalem because he wanted the gospel to start from Jerusalem. So they all went back down to Jerusalem. And maybe a day or so, we don't know for sure, but could have been the same day that he, he ascended into heaven, he gave the message that we are to proclaim. Now, you know, a lot of people say, you know, I'm willing to go, but I'm not quite sure how I'm supposed to, what I'm supposed to say and what we're supposed to do. Well, this Great Commission mandate helps us understand what we are to say. And it's very clear. He says, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it was written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And, you know, that's a very fundamental baseline for the gospel message that that took place. But then it goes on and says this, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So they're to begin in Jerusalem, and that's why they're there right now. But the message is that of repentance, of repenting from their past sins and 
receiving forgiveness of sins. Now, how this works out practically in other religions is this. The need for the message is, is very clear. Animistic peoples, all peoples have religion, and those religions actually have declared what the predicament, the spiritual predicament of mankind happens to be. Animistic peoples or tribal peoples um, would say, and I worked among these kind of peoples when I worked in Papua Indonesia for 15 years, they would say that man's problem is the problem of spirits, menacing spirits, spirits that are around me that trip me up, make me fall, make me do bad things, or trying to kill me, or trying to kill my kids, or bring sickness. The problem is spirits, and therefore we need to appease the spirits. That's the worldview of the animus. When it comes to Hindus, they say, no, no, no the, the, the problem with man, of mankind is ignorance. He doesn't know enough. He's just as plain ignorant as to what he should be doing and how he should go about it and what God he should be following. And there's many guys to follow at the right time. You've got to get the right God and so forth. Uh, comes to ignorance. The Buddhists would say this. Man's problem is desire. It's just, you know, innate in every human being. Desires and wrong desires and all these cause suffering. And so it's desires and suffering. That's mankind's problems. The Muslim would say this. Oh, it's rank selfishness. I am so selfish. I need to rid myself of my selfishness and submit myself to Allah. And that's what, that's what the Muslim means, a person who has submitted. And therefore, get rid of my selfishness. The Jews would say this. Our problem is relationships. Through the years, through the centuries, we've always had these problems with outsiders. And our problem is that we don't know how to relate with people well, and both in our homes and among our communities and with other people and it's broken relationships. But here's what the Bible says. <clears throat> the Bible says man's root problem is sin. All these other ones are symptoms. They're symptoms of the disease. The disease is sin. And that's why this verse says, for the repentance and forgiveness of sin. Sin is at the core of man's problem. And therefore, the three essential truths that come from our, our message is this. The reality of sin as man's greatest predicament. Somehow we need to get that across, that all, are, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The redemptive work of Christ is the only cure for that. Jesus died on the cross for our sins, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then the response is, that's necessary is repentance, to turn around, to turn differently, to think differently about myself, about God, and, and, and about the world that I live in. Repentance needs to be there. Now, you know, it's very interesting. Uh, Luke wrote this, right? R- Luke wrote this passage, and he also wrote the book of Acts. And when you read through the book of Acts, it's amazing to me how many times you come across the phrase, repentance and forgiveness of sin. They're coupled together in many places in Scripture. Repentance and forgiveness of sins. Repentance and forgiveness of sins. And so it's very clear that this is the base message that we have that we need to proclaim. And Jesus told us that this is the message that we are to proclaim. Well, Jesus is almost done with his school world missions to his disciples. He's given them four different emphases in four different settings at four different times for them to understand what the mission is. And they have one more to go. And that has to do with the Acts 1-8 passage just before he ascended into heaven. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When you dig into this verse, it's just full of all kinds of information about the means, the means of going about doing mission, the means of how we are to reach unreached peoples. And there's the means of uh, empowerment, of a plan and instrumentality. So let's first talk about the empowerment, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the one that empowers us in mission. And therefore, it's very vitally important that we walk in close fellowship with God through the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is directing our paths, that we pray that he directs us and he fills us and he uses us. The means of the Holy Spirit uh, on his message bearers is so important. The, the principle is there. Spiritual work takes spiritual power to achieve spiritual ends. We, we don't fight against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and so forth, uh, Paul tells us. 
And it's because it's a spiritual battle. And so, you know, the next chapter of Acts, chapter 2, is when we see the Holy Spirit descend upon the disciples and empowers them. And then they become bold witnesses and they do astounding uh, signs and wonders and miracles along the way. Uh, and the Holy Spirit just seemed to empower them and push them on into ministry. And we still need that Holy Spirit to be the empowering force, the empowering, more than a force, person that helps us along the way. Are you confused about where God wants you to serve? Seek His will through the power of the Holy Spirit. He will direct our paths. The Bible tells us that. And so the means of the Holy Spirit is the first one. There's a second one here, and that has to do with a strategic plan. You know, when you take a look at these geographical terms that are here, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, kind of go together, and then um, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, and then Samaria, and then ends of the earth. All the elements that we see that are part of being on mission cross-culturally are, are embedded here when you stop and think about what's involved. For instance, ethnicity. The disciples listening to this, when Jerusalem Judea, they got the message that these were their own people, their own Jews. And that Samaria was people that were a little bit different. They were the mixtures of Jews and Gentiles. And then the ends of the earth, well, you're talking about going to all the gathered different people than who we happen to be. People who are different from us. Geographically, our own city, and then their neighboring region, and then faraway places. Language. Their native language would have worked there in Jerusalem, Judea. A little bit different dialect out there in Samaria, but then a completely foreign, different language going to the ends of the earth. And then culture. Their own culture. And then a little bit different culture. And then a totally different culture by going this way. You know what? These are all the dynamics that are involved in going cross-culturally today, are they not? And I know some of you have already gone cross-culturally. Some of you told me you've already lived overseas and you know what it's like to embed yourself in a different worldview, different culture, uh, different place, and all that's different that uh, we need to adapt to as we go on mission with Jesus. But um, years ago, maybe you remember Ralph Winter, uh, premier missiologist of of the 20th century. Ralph Winter talked about this. He talked about evangelism one, evangelism two, and evangelism three. And I've just kind of imposed those E1, E2, E3, evangelism one, two, three, on this graph as well, because he said this, none of these are more important than the other. It's just that they take more effort than others. For instance, E1 is easier to do, but it's still very, very vitally important. So we do that. We witness to our own peoples in our own area here. And at the same time, we should be witnessing to the E2, people that are different or maybe coming into our area, maybe immigrants that are coming our way and are now in our community. They're learning our language, learning our culture and stuff like that. E2, evangelism takes place. And then also the E3, where we actually go and put ourselves right into a different culture, a different language, a different worldview, a different you know, uh, geography. Everything is different. And adapt ourselves to doing that so that we can be a witness there. And uh, that's still needed today as well, uh, to do that very thing. So that's the missiological um, uh, way of looking at the task. But there was one more means that Jesus mentions here, and it's the means of human instrumentality. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses three different times. He's saying it's you, you, you. In other words, what we're seeing here is that human instrumentality is God's ordained means of reaching out to humans. No other way, no other avenue, no other being was enlisted by God to do this task. It takes humans reaching humans to reach the unreached. It's going to be us. It has to be us. It can only be us. Because the gospel message can only be best believed when it's conveyed from one human being who experiences all of life's you know, things to another human being who's gone through all of life's issues and problems and whatever happens to be gone there. And so we find that this is a very vital part of mission. Us. You. All of you here. I'm so glad to see all of you here this afternoon because this is where you fall in. 
You are the instruments that God is going to use and wants to use in order to reach unreached peoples. And he'll do it when you surrender to the Holy Spirit as the power and you think about the strategic plan as to maybe how you want to fit into that and make yourself available to go or help others to go to become the instruments of God's, uh, God's use. So I'd like to just summarize all of what we just looked at this way. Here's, here's a quick summary. The gospel message is applicable to all peoples everywhere at all times. We need to believe that. All right? All peoples everywhere, all times. It's a supracultural message that finds meaningful acceptance wherever it is proclaimed. Secondly, therefore, Jesus said, Our task is not complete until we have carried the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth, proclaiming it among every known people in every region that you can think of. That is the task that we are to do. And therefore, a third of us, when when we think that still today, 2,000 years after Jesus took the disciples through the school world missions and millions upon millions of dollars and people have gone into gospel service, and yet we still find that one-third of humanity still does not have gospel access. It should, it should grieve us that that's the way it is, and we should be doing something about it. One last slide. Our mission, therefore, can be summed up in this way. Uh, reaching the unreached takes the model to follow, understanding of the magnitude of our tasks, uh, utilizing the method that Jesus gave us, proclaiming the message that he gave us to proclaim, and then the use of the means, the three means, to get the job done. And I'm convinced that if we can understand and believe and follow this way that Jesus told us that we are to go on missions with him, if our churches would understand all these very basics, it's pretty basic, right? I probably did not say anything new to you today, except maybe one or two things that have to do with chronology. But when it comes to this, much of it is something that we just need to go back to. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus gave us our marching orders through this way. Well, I have a book here. It's called A Third of Us. If you're interested um, to dig deeper, you can do that. Uh, this book is... Um, uh, just $5 if you want one. Just throw it into the box here, $5, and take a book along with you. Um, I just skimmed the surface of so much that's else that could be said that uh, I just feel that um, if you want to go deeper, you can, you can do that very thing. Well, I have done all the talking, all the lecturing, and uh, you all have been very, very good in listening to me, but I'd like to open up the questions. Maybe there's something that uh, was said that you'd like clarification, or you want to add something that you have uh, in regard to Jesus and these Great Commission passages, or the state of a third of the world that still has no gospel access. Yes. Uh, 17,000 is the total, but the unreached, I, I believe, is 7,000. Um, I guess you can find different statistics, but that's what comes off the Joshua Project website, which keeps a running count just all the time of the number of people. So we think there are 7,000 unreached people groups. Thank you. It's, it's no. Well, yeah, uh, we're hoping it's getting smaller. And uh, actually, it has been getting smaller. It is, those figures do get revised uh, quite a bit. Unengaged peoples is a subset of unreached. Unengaged means that, hey, no one's even trying to get to these people. And there's about 900 unengaged of those 7,000 still remain. So we need people that even are willing to go to those places that no one has even begun to do work. They're unengaged altogether. So that's just another way to look at it, too. Thank you for that. How about anybody else? Okay, let me just, let me give you one, because many times I get asked this question, and maybe you you just um, would like to hear this as well. Because when I talk about the means that it's us, we are the ones that must proclaim the gospel and all, Inevitably, someone would say, hey, wait a minute, how about those Muslims that are seeing visions of Jesus or somebody coming in a white, uh, dressed in white and tell them that they must follow me? 
uh, is Jesus short-circuiting the mission and now we don't need to witness anymore because Jesus is going to do it without our help? And that's a good question. And the question is this. Uh, The answer is this, I believe. Uh, Yeah, I really believe it. And that is this. Although I believe that Jesus does, and sometimes in unusual circumstances, reach into a hardened heart and maybe in a dream or a vision somehow, gets people on a start to follow him. It's always followed up by that person being told or going to someone else that can explain what they saw. Because they're confused and they don't know what they saw. Or they, they've been told to go see somebody out like maybe a Christian bookseller or a radio station or something. Turn on the radio, listen to the message, which is human mortality, right? It's always something that they need to do is to go and hear it from a human being to bring them all the way into the fold of becoming a believer in Jesus Christ. So um, just remember that, that that's important too. All right? Yes? Well, I guess just as an encouragement, we've been working for 25 years with what was considered the closest unreached people group to the U.S., which was the Taiwanese Indians. Oh. And, um, and just as an encouragement, it is possible. It looks discouraging. Yeah. And I'm not saying it's not discouraging. It's slow work. Unreached people groups are unreached for a reason. Yeah. Wonderful. In the last two years, things are happening, walls are cracking, and God is moving. So I just would, I can't encourage you enough. If God is calling you to do this, do it. <laughs> do it. Well, Amen. and thank you for your service. 25 years. That's just so, so good. I'm glad to hear that. I applaud you for that service. That's wonderful. And it's great to hear that results. Yep. If God's calling you to do it, go do it. There's a lot of joy in following Jesus and that, that mission. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Appreciate your attendance. And hopefully you take this with you and uh, think over it and just ask the Lord what he would have you to do as you consider the uh, third of humanity that still needs to hear the gospel. All right? Thank you. Good day.